stories. Be motivated. Be inspired. Join us today. Voice America Influencers. Welcome to Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. If you're ready for inspiration and tips to improve your life, hear what some of the fascinating minds of today have to say. Our hope is that you'll live your passion and inspire the world. And now, here is your host, Allison H. Larson. Good morning, everybody. So excited to have you joining me today on Spotlight. Today, I've got two phenomenal guests. The theme of the show is Wish Men, and the reason why I entitled the show that way is because our first guest, Frank Shankwitz, is actually considered the Wish Man. Now, Frank got this title because he is the founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, He has done some incredible things in the world, and what's even more phenomenal is that Frank uh, comes from a place and a situation that was less than ideal. He overcame some struggles and some battles in his life and now wants to give back to others. Most recently, we were able to feature Frank at the Spirit Senate in L.A., and uh, which was just last weekend, and Frank actually won the biggest award, which was the Invincible Warrior Award, the Steve Jennings Invincible Warrior Award, for his work giving back to the entire world. So, Frank, are you there? Welcome to the show. I am here, and thank you all for inviting me. Really a pleasure to talk to you. Well, good, and we're so glad to have you now. Uh, for those of you who listened last week, we actually had Andrew Steele on, who's going to be playing Frank in an upcoming movie. We're going to talk about the movie a little bit more on our next segment, so you definitely want to stick around and listen to that. But Frank, before we get into all that, I actually wanted to talk with you a little bit about your background and your story, because I I think it's incredible that you used some negative or less than ideal experiences to really learn and to grow, and uh, now you're using those to actually help inspire and uplift people all over the country. And by the way, everybody, Frank was uh, listed by Forbes as one of the top motivational speakers last year. So he is going all around the nation speaking on this. But Frank, tell us about your your beginnings and your story and where you came from. Well, it's... uh... It's about an hour-long story, but we'll try and condense it here as much as possible. Um, you, get, you got about eight to ten minutes, so <laughs> let's. But I mean, just just tell people a yeah. little bit. Tell tell our listeners just a little bit about your background, growing up, uh, kind of your circumstances there. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, my mother divorced my father when I was two years old, and she started on a journey. She wanted to go to Arizona, where she had worked as a teenager, and this was in Chicago, Illinois, at the time. And um, my father had custody of me, but she kidnapped me off a playground, and off we went on her adventure. Uh, And for the next up until 10 years old, we lived in a tent. We lived in the back of a car. We lived in flop houses. uh, Food was always an issue. And she would work two weeks in one town, two weeks in another, just keep moving on and moving on, because my father, in fact, was looking for us during this period. Uh, We eventually ended up in a little town called Sligman, Arizona, on Route 66, and this is in 1953, and literally at that time, just outside of town, she completely ran out of gas, car broke down, no money whatsoever, no food, and a ranching family took us in, and for the next six months, we in fact lived in their, uh, our, our bedroom was their kitchen floor, a very small ranch house, and a couple bedrolls on the kitchen floor, but these people started helping us out. And then in the town of the Seligman, 
which is predominantly 500 people, predominantly Mexican and Indian population, uh, they started helping us out. And at 10 years old, I started working full-time as a dishwasher and continued that uh, all through uh, grade school. But again, people were helping us out constantly. And a father figure, a mentor of mine named Juan Delgadillo, who I had met in Seligman, just kept pointing out to me, Frank, when you can, give back, because so many people are helping you. And I said, Juan, what do you mean by giving back? And this wasn't a popular term in the 50s. I said, we, we, we can't even afford to eat. People are helping us out. He said, you don't have to have money to give back, Frank. Look at Mrs. Sanchez over there. Look at all of the weeds in her yard, and yet she's bringing you beans and tortillas. You can go clean up that yard. You can clean up everything. In fact, you can help her paint that house. You're old enough and big enough. And the same with Mr. Ortega. They're helping you out. And look at that old caboose that they took from a wreck on the Santa Fe line. That's going to be now their family home. You can help him sand and paint and just help everybody out. So always get back. You don't have to have money to do that. And I always remember that throughout my life. And then uh, so I started seventh grade. My mother approached me and said, I can't afford you anymore. You're on your own. And she left. And wow, again, so I, you're I, in seventh grade. How old were you? Well, that is, I mean, what, I've got a son a, going into seventh grade. He's 11, like 12. <laughs> yeah, 11, 12, something like that, whatever you are in seventh grade. And wow. I got, went to Juan and said, how do I, what, what do I do now? And he said, you always have to learn to turn that negative to the positive. And I, I didn't understand what he meant. And he said, I'm going to make arrangements for you to, in fact, to live with Mrs. Sanchez, who's a widow. And for the first time in your life, you're going to have your own bedroom. You're going to have a bathroom indoors because we didn't have uh, indoor plumbing where we were living. And not only that, she's the best cook in town. So all of these negatives you had in life are now positive. And it, it wow. was, and it turned out to be great. Uh, and I always remember those lessons. Following uh, grade school, high school, I went into the Air Force and served four years. And then out of the Air Force, I went to Motorola, which were hiring Vietnam veteran era veterans. Uh, and they gave me a great education using the GI Bill, uh, got me into the engineering program, a, a great paying job. Uh, but I didn't care for the city life, the big Phoenix area life. And got very bored. And friends of mine had joined the Arizona Highway Patrol from uh, after college, and asked me to, to submit an application. And just on a whim, I did. Uh, there was a thousand applica- uh, applicants at that time. They chose fifty, and I happened to be one of them. And decided I'm going to start this new career, which is probably the best life decision I ever made. Uh, immediately on the Highway Patrol, I was asked to join their brand new motorcycle program, uh, which I did and first stationed down in a little town, Yuma, Arizona, where I got involved with Special Olympics. Uh, I love working with these kids, teaching them sports. And that was the first time I thought to myself, Juan, I think I'm starting to give back. I always remembered Juan's lessons. And mm-hmm. then... Uh, I love that. I, was, I love that you, you took yeah. those lessons from your childhood that were really ingrained when you, when you had nothing and, uh, and you, you used that even as an adult in giving back. Love that. Yeah, and then um, I was assigned to a 10-man motorcycle squad that we worked the whole state of Arizona, two weeks in one town, two weeks in another town. And um, the television show Chips became very popular during this period. And for those that don't know about that, it was the adventures of two California motorcycle officers. Um, and it was so popular with the, the kids, the young kids from the ages 5 to 13 or 14 and we would go into town, our two-man team, and the kids would start yelling at us, Hey, Ponch, hey, John, the characters from the TV show. 
And it was a great PR thing. In fact, we started going to the schools on our off-duty time and talk about bicycle safety, which the kids could care less about. They just wanted to crawl all over the motorcycles, which was fine. We had a lot of fun doing that. Then in 1978, I was involved in a high-speed chase on, by the California border next to the Colorado River um, with a drunk driver, and uh, another drunk driver pulled right in front of me. I hit him at 80 miles an hour and was pronounced dead at the scene. Wow, hey. so you were on your motorcycle when you hit his car. Is that right? Right. right. Wow. And they, my partner tried to revive me. He couldn't do it. Uh, he called in the code 963A, officer killed in the line of duty. An off-duty emergency room nurse from California stopped at the scene, said, please let me try and revive him. They said, it's no use. She didn't listen to him, thank God. <laughs> and obviously wow. revived me after four minutes. And it took a long time to recover from that accident. I had uh, a skull fracture, a traumatic brain injury, a lot of broken bones, missing skin. But I started saying, why did God spare me on this? What what was the reason? There has to be a reason that they brought me back to life. And that was answered in 1980 when our department, the Arizona Highway Patrol, was introduced to a seven-year-old boy named Chris who had terminal leukemia. And his heroes were Ponch and John from that television show Chips. And he told his mother, I wish I could be, and that's the first time she had heard that word, I wish I could be a motorcycle officer when I grow up. And a family friend of hers contacted the Arizona Highway Patrol and said, is there any way he can meet a Highway Patrol motorcycle officer? And I happened to be the officer that they chose because of my work, I guess, around the state with the children. And I had never met this little boy, Allison, but our, with the permission of his doctor and his mother, our state police helicopter picked him up at uh, his hospital and flew him to our headquarters building where I was standing by with the motorcycle. And I expected the paramedics to help this little boy out. He had just come off IVs. Instead, here comes this little red pair of sneakers running out of the helicopter, jumping on the motorcycle. I'm Chris. Can I, can I turn on the siren? He knew everything on that motorcycle because our equipment was identical to California Highway Patrol from the, from the show. And he's giggling and laughing and having so much fun. And I'm looking at his mother, and she's crying, big tears. And I couldn't understand why. Then it dawned on me, she has her 7-year-old back. He's a typical 7-year-old now having fun instead of laying in a hospital bed, in fact, dying. But Chris went on that wow. day to become, Chris went on that, that day to become that, Frank, the first and only. Point, I, would, I just want to point that out real quick here, too, uh, because I think that's the biggest thing, is I've talked with different parents of, kids who've had terminal illnesses, um, that's the one thing that they say that saddens them the most is they feel like their children are being robbed of their childhood. Uh, Exactly. Because now they're in a place and under circumstances that, you know, even any adult would (laughs) struggle to find joy in. But here are these children who, you know, when we're younger, we can be so carefree and we can be playful and we can have fun, and we don't have to worry about all these things that we have to worry about as adults, and suddenly a child has a terminal illness, and no longer can they be carefree, no longer can they be worry-free, and in fact, oftentimes they can't even really play because uh, of the, the different treatments and things that they're going through. So I can only imagine, you know, her just being a mother myself, of her gratitude and her feelings as she saw her son being able to be a child again. Yeah, and and especially I learned that Chris knew he only had a few weeks to live. 
And I, I can't even imagine that at a seven-year-old, what they think about that. But his mother told me later, he was brave, he accepted it. He knew he, knew he was going to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. He knew God was going to embrace him. So he was very comfortable with the whole thing. But Chris went on that day to become the first and only honorary Highway Patrol officer in the history of the Arizona Highway Patrol. Now, this is 37 years ago. Uh, and complete with a custom-made uniform that we gave him, uh, his own badge that's still assigned to him today, yeah, eventually his motor wings, making him his, a motor officer, his wish had become true. And unfortunately, he passed away a couple of days later. And I was saying, so what was wings. going through your mind, Frank, knowing that he had passed, I mean, when he passed away, obviously it had to, to be kind of sad and heavy, but uh, what was going through your mind as he was there on the motorcycle and then knowing that he had had that experience, having passed away only a couple of days later? Well, the biggest thing is is his wish had become true, and I felt good about that. I could never get used all my years as a detective in that uh, with working homicide. I could never get used to the death of a child. It just really gets to you, and especially one that bonds with you so so quickly. Uh, and when Chris did die, our commanders asked if I would go back to Illinois where he was going to be buried and give him a full police funeral. They said, we have lost the fellow officer which I did, mm-hmm. and we were joined by Illinois State Police, City Police, County Police to help bury this little boy. In fact, he was buried mm-hmm. in uniform. His grave marker reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. But more to answer to your question, flying home from Illinois, I just started thinking, this boy had a wish, and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? And that's when the idea of the Make-A-Wish Foundation was born, some 36,000 feet over either Iowa or Kansas or something. <laughs> born and born in the air. Wow. So, so, Frank, how did you move this into action? Because you talked about as a child being taught to give back and to look for those in need. You've talked about being able to fulfill that in, in small ways throughout your life, and now you have this big idea. Did you, first of all, how did you feel it, fulfill it? And second of all, how, I mean, did you ever think that it would get as big as it's gotten today? To fulfill it was very difficult. Um, I went back and talked to my fellow officers. In fact, Chris's mother, when she came back, several people, I said, this is my idea. I want to do this. I want to grant wishes to children with life-threatening illnesses. And they all said, the majority said, it's a, it'll never work. There's nothing like this. Uh, people just won't buy it. But remembering Juan's words, turn that negative to a positive, it took six months. But I finally found the right people to support the idea. And uh, we now, did you didn't have a lot of one. money, did you? You didn't have to have a million uh, dollars that you could go start I don't, this I don't have thing. a penny. I started working every part-time job I could to uh, uh, get the foundation going. And in fact, I was the, after we became official, I was the first president and CEO, but never accepted a salary. All the money went direct to the mission, which, which needs to be done a lot more in a nonprofit world. But like yeah. I said, we, we became successful. Nobody had heard of this, but once the press, that was our biggest thing, Alice, and the media picked it up and said, wow, this is such the greatest idea. And from that point, when it went on national TV, national news, all over, even the Inquirer of all things did a feature story. Uh, boom, the money just started coming in for donations to help the children. And in answer to your second question, did I did I think it was going to grow? After our first official wish, we sent a little boy to Disneyland. I told our board some there were going to be national and international, and they all laughed at me. 
but uh, I think somewhat I got the last laugh on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just listening to your story and the journey that you've been through, how Make-A-Wish was started, usually when I'm interviewing someone, I'll get the chills a couple times when I say something. I'll tell you, if you could see my... You could see my arms right now. They they're standing, you know, my hair is standing up on end. I've I've just gotten goosebumps the entire time you've been talking, and one of the things that I think we all can learn, one of the lessons that we all can learn, and that you learned at such a young age is, you don't need to be rich to give back. You don't need to have an ideal life circumstance to give back. All you do is you look for somebody around you that's in need and you start giving. And the other thing, too, in fulfilling those wishes and those wishes of people around us, I mean, I've always thought it would be such, you know, a fun thing to be a genie and just be able to grant people's wishes all around me. But what I've learned from you is is it, you really can be and you've become that genie or we're that genie for so many kids. How many kids, do you know at this point, how many kids have gotten wishes fulfilled? This is an amazing figure. I just got the new figures a couple of weeks ago from our national office. Um, and, and we've grown from that time in 1980, the initial chapter in Arizona, to now 63 chapters in the United States, 36 international chapters on five continents. And the latest figure is now 415,000 wishes have been granted, all because of that one little boy. Wow, and all because of you, too. I have to say, you know, that little boy inspired you, but you were the one that took action. You did it, and you made it happen. So, Frank, from the bottom of my heart and from all of us listening, thank you so much for being brave enough to see a need, to act on it, and to follow through with an idea and make it happen. So, thank you. Well, thank you. We have about one minute to commercial break. What I wanted to end on is could you tell me what, uh, you, you told us the experience of the little boy who began this whole movement, but can you tell me uh, maybe one more touching example or experience or letter that you've gotten that really made a difference that helped help you know that you were making a difference in the world? Not so much a letter, but and you mentioned I've, I've got this new speaking career, uh, which I'm so fortunate to have after retiring for, as a homicide detective. But during this, every place I go, including your last event, you're in David's last event, uh, there are people in the audience that are either a, a wish mother, father, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, but more important, as is in your audience, a wish child that has survived and now an adult. And I got to meet yeah. that special wish yeah. child during your event. And to me, that is just the biggest payback ever. Had so much fun talking to her. And especially when I looked at her, and her wish when she was like uh, 12 years old, and now she's an adult. And I said, what was your wish? And she described it was a Disney cruise. But as she described the whole experience, I'm just watching her eyes, and I can see that, that glow, that happiness again, just reliving every moment. Well, thank you for sharing that experience. And again, thank you for all that you've done, for being at the past event. And I'm sure that's such a fulfilling experience to to see the lives that have been touched. When we come back, we're going to hear more about the upcoming movie that is based on Frank's life. He also has a book out that I'm sure everybody listening is going to want to grab. So he's going to tell us about that book and where you can get it. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The Greg Reed Show takes you behind the scenes with some of the most successful entrepreneurs and influencers the world has to offer. Greg S. Reed is known as a master storyteller and a highly sought after motivational keynote speaker. You'll learn that successes have their downsides and challenges as well. Find out how Greg and his guests have overcome these challenges to become some of the top influencers today. Listen to The Greg Reed Show, Mondays at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Influencers. Have you ever checked out In the Limelight with Clarissa Burt? You don't know what you're missing. Clarissa has a great circle of friends and influencers. How do you live a model life? Find out when Clarissa puts her amazing guests and engaging topics under the spotlight. We'll talk with the masters from art, science, food, health, finance, beauty, and business. You really can't miss a single show. Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You're tuned in to Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. To find out more about Allison and our program, please visit soulintuition.com. Again, that's soulintuition.com. Now back to Spotlight. Here is Allison H. Larson. Welcome back to Spotlight. Today we have been privileged to hear from Frank Shankwitz, the founder of Make-A-Wish. We just heard his story, how he went from less than ideal circumstances, but was really touched by an adult in his life who taught him how to give back and how to turn negative into positive, which he was able to do at Began the Make-A-Wish Foundation, who is which is now worldwide granting wishes to kids all over the world who are terminally ill. So welcome back, Frank. Yes, thank you. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is they're actually making a movie based on the book that you wrote, and this movie is called Wish Man. Now, last week I mentioned we heard from Andrew Steele. Andrew is actually playing you in the movie and he told us a little bit about how you chose him to be in that movie. Uh, but I want to hear the story from, from your angle. So how, how did you choose Andrew to play you? Well, to start with uh, the movie, I never even thought about a movie. And a friend of mine, in fact, my mentor named Greg Reed on my speaking career, uh, knew I was writing a book. And he started looking at the draft. And he said, oh, my God, this has to be a major motion picture. And I said, no. He said, yeah. yes and started the ball rolling, getting me introduced to the people in Hollywood, per se. Uh, started working on a screenplay, and it has uh, come to fact. In fact, uh, we start set design in Arizona. We're going to film in Arizona. Start set design the uh, middle of July this year. Then actual filming starts on August 14th, uh, again with a feature motion picture. But I was speaking at an event in Beverly Hills um, 
last year because we had got the screenplay down, and, and luckily I have script approval, so it, it's uh, not going to be exaggerated as the based on true story movies are in Hollywood. But this gentleman came up, introduced himself, and he was talking in an Aussie accent, and I've been to Australia a few times, just thought this is interesting. Introduced himself, started to talk about a nonprofit uh, he was doing. He had no idea about the movie, and then somewhere in the audience talked about it. And he said, wow, I'm an actor out of Australia, and he gave me his credentials. And I just started looking at him, and I said, this could be the young Frank, because the movie is a period piece from 1950 to 1980. And the character in the movie, my character, is in the mid-30s. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I put my cowboy hat on him, and he looked, boy, there's the part. And he never even suggested it, but I gave his name to our director and our executive producer, and they started researching his credentials and credits and did a screen test with him, and he said, it's perfect. And they hired him on the spot after that screen test. Well, I do have to say, so last week, before he was on, I introduced him as this guy with the sexy Australian accent, and then to be funny, he came on and was giving me his Arizona accent that he's going to be <laughs> using in the movie, so uh, I, was, I was a little bit surprised. I thought, is this the right guy? Uh, but sure enough, it was, and of course, he was at the event last weekend, too, so that was that was really cool for me to see both you and him together. I think he even had a cowboy hat, uh, wrote a song for you, that, which he sung on stage. So, Frank, when is this movie going to be released, and uh, how, how can we find out more about it? Uh, you can follow it again on my website and on Facebook. Uh, and my website is Wishman1, uh, the number one, wishman1.com. And uh, also just on Facebook, on Wishman Movie. Uh, but the scheduled release, hopefully, uh, Con Film Festival has already contacted us for being one of the premier movies in May of 2018. Now, it isn't even filmed yet, but they read the screenplay and they said, we want to feature this movie at Con. So we feel very good about that. And let's good, just hope the, uh, final, so the final product uh, leads, leads up to the, to the screenplay. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about your book, because this is something, too, that I think uh, can inspire a lot of people. I recently was watching a, a couple of movies. One of them was The Shack in the theater. And as I was watching this movie, I got thinking, of course, it was a book first. And then somebody looked at the book, and they said, wow, this would make a great movie, kind of what happened to you. And then they, they created this movie, which I, sitting there in the theater, I'd never read the book, but as I'm watching the movie, I'm just in tears, was very touched by the movie, and thought, this all started with somebody's story that they wrote, a book that they wrote. And it made me really grateful that I've taken the time to write a book, to share that message with the world. Now, I don't think my book's ever going to be made into a movie, but just like it starts with one person, when you're talking about the Make-A-Wish Foundation, you had one experience with a little boy, it kind of helped you to uh, have this idea, which you then put into motion. And I think it's the same thing with a book, and I think a lot of us maybe have books inside of us or information that we want to get out and we aren't brave enough to share it or we don't want to take the time to write it or, you know, the timing's not just perfect for us. So what inspired you to write your book and what suggestions would you give to somebody out there who maybe is thinking about writing a book? Well, I had been a spokesperson for Make-A-Wish since the beginning. uh, My title was Wish Ambassador. And I say was because I'm not doing that right now for a possible conflict of interest uh, with the organization. I don't want to use the brand name to further uh, the movie. So, um, but as a wish ambassador, they sent me literally all over the world uh, on keynote uh, speaking, on um, 
meeting executives and that, trying to promote the foundation to get the, the donations, the support. And people would hear this story, and they kept saying, you ought to write a book. Uh, and I'm, like I said, at the time, a, a homicide detective, I'm tired of writing reports. But people kept mm-hmm. encouraging, and I thought, I'm going to do this. But I realized that as a, a police officer, our reports are, saw crook arrested same. And I started taking some classes to, to um, better flow with, with the book, with the words, instead of saw crook arrested same. It was this beautiful moonlit night, off in the shadows, <laughs> yeah. and to learn how to expand on that a little bit. And, and I got a lot of guidance. Again, uh, Greg Reed, who's a best-selling author, gave me a, a lot of guidance on how to write it. And, in fact, I would send him the drafts, and he would make suggestions on the changes. And it took, actually, a couple of years to write that book to where I thought it may be acceptable. He, and then, obviously, the publishing company thought it would be acceptable. And on the uh, maybe third or fourth draft, they accepted it, which really surprised me, and even surprised Greg, because he said he didn't know how many times, 200-some times he had been turned down on his first book, and we nailed it right away, so I felt very good about that. But everybody has a story, and the whole basis of my book is, the whole concept is everyone can be a hero. All you have to do is somehow give back. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I I really appreciate you sharing that. And there are a couple things that I heard in there that I think are really crucial to point out. And one of them is that you actually have people say, hey, you know, that would be a really good book. You should write a book. And I cannot count how many times I've been working with audiences or mentoring clients, I've been coaching people, and they said to me, well, you know, I've been told for years that I should write a book. They're an expert in something or they have an amazing story and they just haven't taken the time to do it. So if anybody's ever told you before you should write a book, you probably should do it. I'm glad you listened to them. And then that you put the effort into that. Not only that, but you hired or you worked with a mentor with somebody who could help you through that process. And I think that's important with books too. I think in this you know, day and age, it's so easy to self-publish that a lot of people overlook the power of having a mentor, of having somebody to help guide you through that process. But if you want your book to be successful, if you want your message to really reach the masses, then you do need to learn from somebody who has had experience and success in that area. And of course, I'm sure everybody on this call is wondering how they can get your book. Is that available on your website, Frank? It's available on my website, or um, it's available on Amazon, uh, both in the print and Kindle version. In fact, we're going to do a big push starting next week on the Kindle version. But if you would like a uh, personalized or autographed copy, you can contact my uh, personal assistant, and her name is Stephanie, and her email address is... Oh, I think we lost you, Frank right when he was about to give Stephanie's email address. Well, we do have your website, which is Wishman1. Uh, you can go there to get Frank's book. Frank is also speaking. He is doing keynote speeches uh, at the time he is for hire to come and speak to audiences. So if you know of a foundation, if you know of a corporation or a group of people that you feel like Frank could inspire that group, uh, would want to hire him to come and work with them, you can go to speakerscoalition.com. He is one of the board members on the Speakers Coalition, so that's speakerscoalition.com, or he has more information about that on his website. So thank you, Frank, so much for being here today. Sorry we lost 
to you there at the end. Another member of the Speakers Coalition and also somebody that was at the last event, a really great guy who is helping uh, not only other people's wishes to come true, but also really knows how to make his own wishes come true and manifest them into reality, is Tim Ralston. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, hello. You got me? Hi, Tim. Hi, how are you doing? Okay. Good. I want to make sure you know, I, I, I got on like... Yep, you, you are here. And you know, I didn't even realize both of the, my guests today are actually from Arizona. So Frank uh, still lives up there in Prescott, Arizona, and you actually are down in Scottsdale. Is that right, Tim? Yeah, a um, little bit uh, further west. It's Fountain Hills. It's a little bedroom, small community uh, just on the other side of the, the hills. But uh, it's Scottsdale nonetheless, and, and it's yeah. ridiculously hot here. I can't even tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I can only imagine it's like 97 yeah. in Idaho right now at like, what, 11 a.m. So, yeah, I can imagine yeah. it's uh, pretty hot we down there you, in Phoenix. We so. got to beat at 120 today, so. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, yes, you definitely yeah. do. I'll, I'll be thankful for the 97-degree <laughs> weather here. Well, Tim, exactly. so glad to have you on the show today. Uh, our theme, of course, is Wishman, and we had Frank on. Frank is the Wishman, and, and you are so impressive because not only are you helping other people learn how to fulfill their wishes, you learned how to do that uh, for yourself at a very young age, and I actually want to bring that up here in a little bit. But first of all, I wanted to start by, by talking about some of your credentials. Now, when I first met you, Tim, I had no idea about all of your accomplishments, and I think you're just a naturally just a very humble person, a very personable, very relatable, which I love about you. But I am absolutely going to give you permission to brag right now. And in fact, your list of credentials was so long, I thought it's going to be boring if I read these. But I want you to, to tell our listeners what some of your, your major accomplishments have been, if there's any that you leave out that I think are important, I'm going to jump in. So, uh, oh, my what are, Lord. What are some of your, I'm giving you permission, total permission yeah. to, uh, you know, to brag about yourself. I, you know, that's the thing. I, I, you're, you, you hit it on the uh, nail on the head. I don't like, you know, going out there and toot my own horn, but uh, there's a, a really great friend of mine, Debbie Allen, who actually wrote a book about, you know, you've got to be your own self-promoter, uh, otherwise no one else is going to know who you are. But it's been so hard for me to take her book to heart, but she's gotten so far in this world by, you know, at least tooting her horn occasionally. So um, I'll try. I, I don't you know. Here we go. toot, Tim. <laughs> yeah. So um, like you said, I kind of have lived a very diverse life for sure. Um, I, um, I started off, I didn't, um, I didn't take that road as far as I'm going to go to college and get the college education. I went right out and went right into the military. So I served <clears throat> in um, special forces and uh, air traffic control when I was really young. So I got a, a great taste of discipline and focus. But with that said, I also believe that I had so much more potential. I wanted to go a little farther, a little faster um, with what I wanted in, in financially, um, not so much about serving. I think everyone should do that. Um, but then after that, it just, the bucket list started uh, to flow from, I, I've led one of those lives that if I thought it, I did it. That's just how it works. And so a lot of people go, no way, you didn't do all those things. But it's one of those, I know I have one life to live. Why not just do it to the full, you know, full throttle all the way. So I became a ski instructor in Vail. From there, I 
went across Europe modeling and learned to Well, well hold shoot. on, hold on. I want to go back to Vail for just a second, and we can get deeper into the story. But not only did you become a ski instructor in Vail, but you yeah. guys, when I first listened to Tim, this is how I knew that this guy knew the secrets to success. When he told me, he became a ski instructor in Vail without knowing how to ski. And yeah, so that was you a can, tricky you one. Can keep going. <laughs> we can talk about that later, but, but keep going. Yeah. So you became a ski instructor in Vail, Colorado without knowing how to ski. You modeled right. throughout Europe. Without having contracts. There's, I, you know, I, I did everything on just a, I thought I could do it. I just jumped in and did it. So it's about taking action. That's what life's all about. It's about seeing the vision. And once you have that vision, it's taking action. And that's the thing that most people don't do is to take that action step. So I did that and then um, fell in love with photography and became a professional photographer. And again, without knowing how to do it, I just thought I could do it. Why not try it? And then by like the third photo session, everyone called me a professional. And I'm like, I just read the book, How to Take Good Pictures from Kodak. It was about 18 pages. But it's about the eye. If you have a good eye, you can take good pictures. So um, Mm -hmm. I did that for quite some time and had a lot of stuff published in high-end magazines and whatnot. Then got out and started... Well, at that time, I found my wife, and she said in about 30 seconds, you better find a better job. You're not taking pictures of beautiful women all the time. So I had to quit that (laughs) and uh, became an inventor, and I invented um, some products, and as well as my ex-wife, she came up with an invention, and we designed it and just went out there and went for it. We found investors. We sold them the idea, and um, from that point, we started to market one product. It was uh, for women on, that are listening, they're going to love it. It's an automatic cosmetic pencil sharpener. And oh. I didn't think it was a good idea at all. But, you know, I, she forced me to go to the mall, said, go to the mall and uh, go interview 100 women. And you tell me if they don't think this is a great idea. And out of 100 women uh, that I stopped randomly, and before I got chased out of the mall, of course, they didn't want me doing surveys, but uh, I did it anyway because I wanted to get that that uh, background. And it was a hit. Ninety-eight of them said they would do it, and they actually gave me a 15-minute speech why it was such a great idea. And so I knew we had a winner, and so we launched that across the country and got into QVC, and that's where we really started to make a niche um, and we were the third largest vendor for QVC. We brought in over 400 products, just shy of 400 products mm-hmm. in a period of just eight years. So we were, I was doing a lot of flying, and we were bringing people's ideas and hopes and dreams um, to fruition. And, you know, people would then, once they saw how many times I've been on QVC pitching products, because I was the guy who normally pitched them, <clears throat> they would um, come to me with, you know, ideas and dreams on napkins, and they'd go, "Can you, can you help me?" And so I would turn around and help them design it, help them brand it, and then put them on QVC. And we've made a lot of millionaires um, on that uh, TV program. Mm-hmm. And well, and one thing I from- wanted to bring up too, I mean, we we have to go to commercial here in just a second, uh, you know. And I'm I really like to hear about your journey, and I think there's a lot of lessons in it. And one thing that I want to tell all of our listeners and encourage you to do 
is pull out a pen and a piece of paper because coming up, we're going to have Tim share some of the secrets to his success. One of the the, the last things I want to bring up to Tim before we go here to commercial break is you actually had one of the most, the highest rated reality TV show of the Doomsday Preppers, your show that you're featured on Doomsday Preppers got the highest rating. Um, you actually blew your thumb off on that show. So, uh, you know, him <laughs> sacrificing oh. body parts in order to get his, uh, his moment of fame, right? Uh, I'm sure that was, yeah. I know that, that wasn't exactly intentional, but um, <laughs> it's just another no. one of your, <laughs> I, I, I know, just another one of your accomplishments. Uh, Tim was also featured in the movie The Compass, which definitely was warranted after hearing all of your success and how you're able to manifest your thoughts. So if you, too, want to be like Tim, if you have those dreams, those ideas, you're wanting to know how do you turn that dream into reality, uh, Tim's going to be sharing some of the secrets coming right up, so don't go anywhere. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What is the real social impact that those in the entertainment industry are making? Indie Vision Radio with host Scott C. Brown, the founder of the Indie Vision Project and Maxit Magazine, is a personal conversation about their work in the industry and the impact they're having on humanity. From world health to world peace, you're given a true behind-the-scenes look at what those working in the indie realm are doing to make a positive influence on the world. On the Influencers Channel, tune in to Indie Vision Radio, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America. It's time to elevate yourself and your business to the next level. What are the secrets of business success? Discover them on Key Entrepreneurs of Influence with your host, Kieran Sweeney. Find out who the business owners are that stand out in their respective industries and what they can teach you. The program contains valuable advice that can cost thousands through a professional consultant. Key Entrepreneurs of Influence can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. If you want to transform your mindset to get more from life and enjoy more success, then don't just get motivated, be inspired. Listen as hosts James Dentley and Stephen Pierce take you on a fun, bold, and exciting adventure that will inspire you with ideas, stories, and success strategies to help you find your passion, live your dreams, and experience more happiness and success. Tune in to Be Inspired every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Your future depends on it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be Inspired. You're tuned in to Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. To find out more about Allison and our program, please visit soulintuition.com. Again, that's soulintuition.com. Now back to Spotlight. Here is Allison H. Larson. Hello, I'm back with the fabulous Tim Ralston. Uh, we just heard about a lot of your achievements, Tim, and one of the things that 
I'm learning from you and that I've learned from you, I think we can all learn from you, is how to turn a dream into reality. And just to lead off this section, I wrote a post a while ago, an article that talked about why vision boards don't work. And you and I were talking in a recent mastermind we were at about this. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I said that doesn't work is because a lot of times people just sit and look and they don't do. Something that I've been impressed with you is you had a dream, you just didn't think about it, you just didn't put it on your wall and look at it, but you actually went out and did it. You took that action step and you Mm -hmm. turned your dream into a reality. So I would like to know exactly how you did this. And whenever I'm around somebody super successful like you, I always ask, what are the steps that you took? How did you get from that vision and, and turn it into a reality? Well, you know, again, with the comment about vision boards, and, you know, I own one of the largest vision board sites in the world. Um, uh, We do vision boards a little differently. Vision is really important for success. I don't know any Olympic athlete that has ever gone out there and said, yeah, I, I might win, I don't win. No, they see themselves going across the finish line, raising their hand, standing on the podium. You have to have that, that, um, vision of not just the idea, but the success and what comes along with it, because that's what's your drive. That's what's going to drive you on those days that investors don't step up to the plate or you, or you miss a deadline or something breaks and it doesn't work and you have to go back to the drawing board. I mean, that vision and that, um, that fruition, that, that I know when it happens, it's going to be great. <clears throat> and that's what keeps that motivation going. For vision boards. Yeah, and I do have to agree with you. I just wanted to share really quickly here. Um, something like that happened to me recently, and I 100% agree with you. I had this vision for a long time of an event that would uplift, inspire, give back. Hundreds of people would be there, and we would be, you know, honoring some uh, really influential people. And, and you were at that event, actually, um, that just happened last week in the Spirit Summit. And on the yeah. opening morning as I sat in the back of the room and looked at the hundreds of people that were there and looked at the stage and, and, you know, picked out the different organizations and charities and give backs that, you know, I'd worked to find and got there. I just had tears streaming down my face because that was the vision I saw. And when so many people said, you can't do this, it's impossible. It's never going to happen. I just held on to that vision, held on to that vision. And that moment when that vision turned into reality was one of the sweetest moments of my life. Oh, and yeah. So there you I, go. I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Yeah. That's the, and, and when you get that vision, you know, I always like to break it down in stages and, and then get it really focused on it. But um, you know, as far as here's the idea from idea to conception to actually Again, you said it a million times today is that take action. That's where most people don't achieve any of their goals is because they either believe all the stinking thinking that everyone else has given you, and that's all, again, going back to vision. Um, you know, if your subconscious, if you can train it, because that's my belief, is if you can train your subconscious um, well enough that your conscious mind will just follow along. So subconsciously, if you trained it to say, I am going to make it like you did. I'm going to fill the room. It's going to happen. It will happen. You don't stop. Your subconscious just tells your your conscious brain that 
it's going to happen. Where consciously, a lot of people tend to listen to everyone else around them. You know, people that you can't, you won't, you shouldn't. Those people I cast away from my life as quickly as they come into it. If that person is negative in any way, um, I just don't need them. It's just you have choices that you can make in your life. So if there's poisonous people around you, I give them permission to leave quickly. Um, you want to surround yourself with people that have <clears throat> that same vision or that same passion for what you're doing and that are supportive. And uh, I think if you continue to surround yourself with those people, I mean, your your likelihood of success is is far greater. I mean, you look at the really hyper successful people that are out there in, in the business world or in the nonprofit world, they surround themselves with like-minded people that again, know more than they do in different areas. Like for me with my projects, I hire um, engineers that know a lot more than I do. I have ideas and concepts, but they have mm-hmm. nuts and bolts and how do I design it? So I get the right people to help me. Um, I have business guys. I don't know that much about money. I bring in an investor that knows everything about money. And so mm-hmm. now your, your likelihood of success just you know, amplified. So mentoring and finding yeah. those people around you are fantastic. And I think people just can not step out of that comfort, their comfort zone, you know, for just a second and not be afraid to actually ask. It's amazing how many times it's, and this weekend alone, how many times I got asked a lot of people, because you're up there encouraging, pushing people, talk to people, talk to them. And I got talked to and asked a lot. And I wound up, um, I'm going to try to uh, help raise money for another uh, young inventors project. Um, because it resonated, and it just so happened I had lunch with a lady a week before that was in his industry and had a lot of money that she was trying to put. And I didn't know why I met this person, but I did, and it just clicked. And I'm sitting at dinner with him, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to put these two people together, and I, hopefully I can make that guy's dreams come true. Yeah, you know, and I saw you in action at the event, actually at the Mastermind. You were able to connect with somebody who is investing in one of your projects, and I watched in less than 12 hours, you basically, you know, were working on closing a deal with somebody who wasn't a small deal, multi-million dollar deal, I believe, and I was so impressed by your action. One of the things that really stands out to me, and as you were talking, that kept coming to my mind is you kept bringing up this, you know, fear, and I think the thing that stops us is fear of criticism, either criticism from other people telling us we can't do it, fear of criticism that maybe we aren't the expert, so we're afraid to hire somebody that's smarter than us in a certain area, or we have the, the, the fear of criticism that, you know, we... We can't connect people. We can't ask. We can't reach out because they're going to think less of us. And I think if we can get rid of that fear of criticism, if we can learn how to ask, if we can learn how to connect, and if we can can really learn how to move forward in life and not worry about what other people think. And I love how you said cast those people out of your life that are criticizing you, that aren't supportive of you. Um, That's even going one step further. Uh, and I love the saying, you are the sum total of the five people that you're with the most or that you surround yourself with the most. And mm-hmm. that's something that I've really taken to heart and realized that as I surround myself with positive people who I want to emulate, then I'm going to learn and grow and become like them. So For I sure. appreciate that wisdom that you've shared, Tim. 
So you've got a big project coming up, uh, your next big one that you're working on. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I call it kind of my opus, you know, from when I, my opus invention, because I've invented a lot of products, but they all stem around, um, you know, I have always had a passion for, you know, survival and, and being prepared, and that's where Doomsday Prepper came in, and about... I think I've done about 90 documentaries and a couple of movies all about being prepared and being that guy that has the best new coolest gadget. And I invent a lot of products that I make here in the U.S. And I put, you know, vets back to work and it's another passion of mine. But um, this is one of those, whether you like guns or you don't like guns, I saw a problem, I start thinking outside the box, and I evaluate it, and then I came up with the idea of having one gun that shoots any bullet, which, again, all the gun world goes, no, it can't be done, won't happen, but I made it happen. And so we're about ready. Yeah, you're like Henry Ford that way. (laughs) Every time Henry Ford, can't be done, you can't do it. He's like, watch me, you know. Can't do it, and I'm like, hide and watch, it's going to happen. And because it was, it was something in my mind that it's like, okay, there's a problem. I know I can solve it. And we just kept going back and forth. It took about four years, but we're there. But other people that see it, they get it. I mean, like you said, that deal, um, it happened in less than five minutes, but then, you know, we're still polishing it up, but that person gets it. And, um, it's, it's going to be one of those game changers when you're out there, uh, in the gun world, if you're looking for something, uh, it's called the scavenger six survival rifle. And, um, it's, it's going to be a game changer in the gun industry. Um, we had a couple of crews. I, I showed it off at one huge gun show and they were calling us the next Smith and Wesson, which is such a compliment. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not often that something new comes to market that is, you know, that revolutionary. Um, but this is going to be that one. And, um, so you'll start seeing it. It'll be in December when we're doing launches and we're starting a pre-sell now, uh, for the first hundred guns that I'll, I'll personally sign, it'll be numbered. Um, so it, for gun guys and gun gals, this will be a collector's item for sure. Yeah. And I actually, this, this reminds me of the story of where we met each other. And I, I also think there's a lesson to be learned in this too. I was actually keynoting at a preparedness conference in the middle of nowhere in Utah. Tim was there <laughs> keynoting too. Now, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, you know, so I dressed like I normally do when I go to present on stage. I have my Michael Kors dress on, you know, business dress, my heels, and I, Remember, I walked into the convention center and immediately thought, whoa, I'm overdressed. <laughs> Most yeah. of the people in there were men. Uh, they were uh, dressed in, you know, camo or jeans, cowboy boots. Uh, you know, most of them had goatees. If anybody seen Duck Dynasty, uh, it looked like, you know, a million Duck Dynasty people were there. Um, but Tim and I actually had booths next to each other, and he's selling his, uh, I forget, was it your axe Tim thing? Yes, Timahawk. Tim, you're selling your Timahawk. Uh, I was selling my 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 foot zoning, which is is good for preparedness. But um, anyway, I just immediately was impressed by you and felt connected to you, and and decided to reach out, invited you to come down to a, a conference, and then another conference, and we've gotten to know each other. But uh, I'm so glad that I I took the time to reach out to you. That I've gotten to know you. You've inspired me. Thank you for inspiring our audience to action today too. And uh, leave us with your website. Sure. Um, we, the website that you can look at us is uh, scavenger6.com. It's real simple, scavenger6.com. 
scavenger6.com. If you Google Tim Ralston, you can see his appearance on Doomsday Prepper. He's been on everything from CNN to, oh, I don't know, there's, uh, there's like a dozen different shows you've been featured on there uh, when I Googled your name. So definitely Google him. Check him out. Really great guy. Super wise. Uh, great to listen to. And, and here's the takeaway from today's show. Today's show, the theme has all been about wishes. And what I learned from Frank is look for a need in the world. And look for what other people are wishing for and how you can help them. And you really will create a big difference. And then what I've learned from Tim is when you have wishes, when you have dreams, you can absolutely manifest those and make those come true if you just uh, have that vision, act, and be resolute about what you want. So until next time, hope many of your wishes come true this week. This is Allison Larson signing off on Spotlight. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show, can be heard live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, go make a difference and be sure to tune in again for the next show.